Real people. Real opinions. Real Talk Radio. The multi-award winning Niall Boylan Show. sure many of you have seen some distressing videos surfacing online of late. Crime in broad daylight, often but not always. It is a scene in Dublin City with young people. It can be older people too, but generally speaking, a lot of us have been young people lately. And these videos would make you think we're living in a lawless society. Uh, also, some of the murders of the cold-blooded murders that we've seen recently have are things that we've never seen in this country before. I'm talking about the types of murders that we've seen. I can't go into any individual cases, and you know the ones that I'm talking about of more recent times because most of them are before the courts or somebody has been charged with them. So for subjudice reasons, we can't talk about them. But you know what I'm saying, they're quite callous. But while the videos themselves can cause unnecessary fear, it is true that there is an increase in crime, and that's more than just a perception. Just last week, we spoke about the fact that homicide had increased dramatically in Ireland. That's a cold, hard fact, by the way. Ireland is more dangerous, sad but true. And yes, there is an increasing population, so that would be common place, I suppose, statistically, when you have an increased population, you're going to have more crime because statistically, whatever it is in every single thousand people will commit a crime. But why? Joining me in the line to discuss the possible causes of what feels like a more dangerous and violent society is Dr. Ian Marder. Ian is a lecturer and assistant professor at Manute University, County Kildare, and is also a deputy director of the Research Centre Criminology for, uh, for the college as well. Uh, he is an expert in criminal justice reform and specialises in restorative justice practices to try to reduce the harm caused by crime in our society. And he joins me on the line. Ian, good evening to you. How are you? Yeah, very good, thanks, Niall. How are you doing? I- I'm good, Ian. Ian, firstly, do we live in a more dangerous society or is it just statistically we have more people so we're going to see more crime? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I don't think we live in a more dangerous society now. I suppose it depends on what time period you look at. I mean, one thing I would say is that you're you're right to point to the fact that we should be using rates of crime rather than sheer numbers, because if the population goes up by 10%, but crime goes up by 5%, then you could say crime has gone up by 5%, or you could actually say that statistically the rate of crime has gone down. So it is important to use crime rates rather than just sheer numbers mm-hmm. in the same way that you would use rates of disease or something like that. Yeah. But also the figures that we saw recently from the CSO, which suggested that crime has been going up, uh, th- there are a lot of really significant problems with those figures. So they showed that there was rises in some types of crime in the year to June 2023. So what that means is it's comparing the year July 22 to June 23 to the previous year, i.e. July 21 to June 2022. So that's COVID, exactly. So during COVID, we saw, you know, massive drops in things like burglary because everyone was in the house all the time and you don't burgle houses with people in as commonly. Also, we saw drops in theft and drops in crime related to the nighttime economy. And so we would absolutely expect crime to be higher in 22 and 23 than it was in 20 and 21 because of those things. So what I would always say is, you know, first of all, at very minimum, you'd want to be comparing 22, 23 to 2019, even to just see what the difference was like before and after COVID. But really what we do in criminology is we try and compare things over a longer period anyway, because, you know, you can always get little rises and falls. And what we're really concerned about is the trends. Yeah. 
So you don't want to be looking at spikes. You want to be looking at an overall trend. So you may be comparing decade to decade rather than comparing year to year. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And is it also? Is there also? Sorry for interrupting, but is there also? Want. Is there also a case that? people are more likely to report crimes, say crimes of a sexual nature, sexual assault, rape, sexual abuse. They would be would have been maybe 10, 15 years ago less likely to report those, but maybe more likely to report them now. So is, is that also a case, too, that crimes are just being reported more? Well, that is definitely the case for some types of crime. That's actually a really, really good point. And so the other thing that we use in criminology, if we're trying to work out both the levels of crime in society and also whether crime is going up or down, what we tend to use is what we call victimization surveys or victim self-report data. So there are surveys in, in Ireland, in the UK, and in other countries where they ask thousands and thousands of people what if crimes you've been a victim of in the last year. They ask a representative sample of the population year to year, and that's just much, much more accurate than police-recorded statistics mm -hmm. for a couple of reasons. One is that the police do not detect or have most crimes reported to them, but also um, you know, police recorded statistics can vary quite a bit depending on what the police's activities are. So there's something of an artifact of that. So we definitely know, as you say, for um, sexual violence and domestic violence, you can see a massive increase in some countries in the police recorded statistics, but that doesn't necessarily equate to an increase in prevalence because if people's tendency to report has gone up significantly in that time, then that's going to show up in the police recorded statistics, but not in the victim self-report data. All right, okay. And the types of crimes that we're seeing, uh, I, I can't obviously talk about individual cases, but social media has played a, rule, a role, should I say, in some quite violent crimes lately, where people um, in general, again, I'm not talking specifically about a particular crime, uh, feel the need to film themselves, uh, you know, committing a crime. So... You know, is social media and technology accelerating the problem? In other words, are people kind of almost getting off on committing crimes and showing off? Is that, is, that, is that in people's psyche? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's difficult to say. I, I wouldn't say it's likely that the social media platforms are creating crime as such, but it's probably, you know, increasing people's exposure to it. So... You know, I think what a lot of people get a lot of their information about crime is either from the national or local media or, I suppose, more recently from social media. So it's very easy to feel like lots and lots of crime is happening because you see it in the media or mm -hmm. on social media all the time. But, I mean, let's say just by way of example, and these are not real statistics, but let's say that there's – you know, a thousand, you, that you see a thousand violent offenses one year and 950 the next year, um, that would actually be a very, very significant drop. But if you're just someone who's seeing these things in the media all the time, then it's not going to feel like it's falling necessarily. It's going to feel like it's constant, like it's happening all the time. Yeah, I get you. And, and sorry, another aspect of that question I wanted to ask was in relation to the criminals who are filming themselves committing crimes, do you believe social media has had a negative effect? on the amount of people actually committing crimes. I don't mean in relation to our perception of it, but, you know, the people, you know, those type of people who would be would have that type of thing in mind that would want to kill somebody or that would want to maim somebody or hurt somebody, that they kind of almost get off on doing it in front of a camera and showing off. Honestly, I, I don't think so. I haven't seen any evidence of that. I mean, 
we know that violence has actually been decreasing in the Western world in the last couple of decades. That is very well established through, you know, long-term victimization surveys and, you know, various forms of research over a number of countries. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if it were the case that social media were having that effect, then probably we wouldn't see that. I mean, I suppose you could say that, like, you know, someone who is showing off would have just simply done so in front of the people around them before. And then now, you know, in the same way as, you know, I might have, I suppose, you, you know, you might have bullied someone next to you and now people bully someone on the web. Like it's the same thing. It's just the yeah. the mode of doing it has changed. So I, I wouldn't say it's, I, I wouldn't say I've seen any evidence that that's actually creating new offenses. I mean, obviously, we're all exposed as the media has become bigger and everybody's a journalist these days. Uh, we're all exposed to crime on a much greater basis nowadays than we would have been many years ago. That's why people have a perception that the world is more dangerous. But as you rightly pointed out, it's mm. probably not. It's probably a safer place to live than it was 100 years ago. But in saying that, some of the crimes that we've seen of recent times, particularly in the last three or four years, have been quite heinous. I mean, despicable type of stuff that we couldn't even imagine. Is that... The, What's going through the mind of an individual as a criminologist to commit those types of crimes? And why are we seeing crimes that we would have associated with TV shows in America and not Ireland? Why are we seeing more of those types of horrible homicides or murders, as they call them here? Why are we seeing more of that? Yeah, I mean, again, I suppose I'm not sure that there is necessarily more of that. I mean, you know, if you have... Uh, one or five million people, then you're always going to have basically every possible combination of behaviors uh, that any group of humans could do playing out over a period of time. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm not sure that, you know, particularly brutal or heinous violent offenses are necessarily increasing. You know, it may be that our awareness of them is greater or our exposure is greater or just simply that – you know, you you kind of get desensitized over time, and it feels like it's always happening. But mm. um, you know, very very horrible murders have been happening. Um, you know, certainly my whole life, and I'm sure your whole life, and the lives of everyone uh, mm-hmm. that's listening to this. In relation to you know the the criminology behind this, and looking into the mind of the criminal, be it the serial killer or the murderer or whatever it is. We've had the kind of debate on the show many times, you know, is evil something, is it nature or nurture? Do you believe that some people are born evil? No, I wouldn't say so. I mean, I think evil is a bit of a a construct. It's something that we use because I think we grasp for simple explanations for things that are difficult to comprehend. So, I mean, if you just take murder as an example... Murder is what we call the, the people who commit murder are often atypical in nature. And by that, I'm in terms of offending. And by that, I mean, we kind of have this assumption that most murders are committed by the same types of people who might have many, many convictions for violence or burglary. And actually, when you drill down into the people who commit murder and the murders that happen, a lot of them are people who've never had a conviction before, but there is some sort of, you know, interpersonal conflict or some sort of, you know, very long series of unfortunate events that's resulted in someone killing someone. Or indeed, you know, when um, one of the statistics recently was that the uh, murders have increased from 
2021 to now. And that is true, but that's partly because there was a very, very low murder rate in 2021. And interestingly, mm. that was the first year where the majority of murders were domestic violence related. Okay, so, so I mean, and I'm assuming the majority of to, murders yeah, would be the majority of murders would be by somebody you know, I imagine. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd have to double check that, but that seems very likely to me, considering that you know, even in a given year where where the majority are not necessarily intimate partner violence, like there's still be a big minority that are. And then of the remaining ones, you know, your chances of, of getting murdered or seriously hurt by someone you don't know are very slim, apart from in the car, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you're much more likely to be injured very seriously in the car or at work, you know, uh, than yeah. you are in a, in a kind of a violent offense. And in relation to those people who I mentioned earlier on, nature, not nurture, you reckon it's nurture rather than nature or it's something that happens in their lives, right? Um. Can we all be murderers? Are we all capable of murder, do you think? Or is it just within the mindset? Or is it just a certain percentage of the population that are capable of, you know, of taking that step, that final step? No, I think that, I frankly think that anyone is possible of any type of behavior under the right circumstances. And we know this because, you know, if you look at countries that have had civil wars, like Ireland indeed had, you know, you would have had people... Um, committing very, very serious harm to each other that in the cold light of day would never do something like that. They wouldn't have done it five years before. They wouldn't have done it five years after. But in the circumstances of a civil war or in the circumstances of, you know, I, I teach some of this in my, in, my, uh, in my classes. And one of the examples I use is uh, child soldiers, you know, young people who are effectively abducted and forced to kill and then, you know, slowly the duress is removed over time and they keep doing it. Now, that doesn't mean there's something inherently wrong with them. That's just because, you know, that is something that you will end up doing under the circumstances. So I absolutely think that mm. anyone is capable of any type of behavior. I suppose it's like when people come back. Yeah, when men came back from Vietnam, it was a kind of social conditioning, wasn't it? They, they had got out there and murdered everybody or anybody they seen at the time, because, of course, we all know about the body bag counts. So when they came back to America after it was all over and these retired vets, they were all kind of suffered greatly uh, with mental health problems because they, they just didn't know how to stop, I suppose. And many of them, by the way, had committed yeah, serious true. crimes. True, true. And I mean, look, there is also, we also know that people who commit multiple, even serious crimes um, stop committing crime over time. Like, and I mean, you know, stepping back from the most serious crimes, we know that most people will commit a crime at some point in their life. We know that most young people who commit crime when young will stop without ever having been caught. And we know that most people who commit lots of crime are also not committing crime most of the time. So, mm. I mean, I think it really is quite variable based on circumstance. Is somebody like Ted Bundy, for example, the subject of a lot of criminology classes? Because I suppose he would be the classic example of a serial killer that, you know, is a reasonably intelligent person or a very intelligent person, probably. Um, you know, so much so that he represented himself. Even here in Ireland, Malcolm MacArthur, of course, who was a friend of the director general at the time, uh, you know, who committed, well, one murder that he was convicted of, a second murder which he was never convicted of and spent a, a long time in jail. But gentlemen, seen as gentlemen from the outside world, are these kind of people's kind of subject of criminology classes because they kind of go against the grain because we expect a murderer to be a type of person, but they're not really, are they? 
Well, no, I have to say that actually we don't really spend a lot of time in criminology talking about people like Ted Bundy. And I suppose the reason for that is that in criminology, we're very interested in what normally happens most of the time. Like that's the best way to understand the world is not by focusing on these very small numbers of things that are totally anomalous, but, you know, 250,000 people go to court every year, and the majority of that is driving offenses. So if you want to understand how courts work, and if you want to develop policies to make the courts work better, then if you only focus on, you know, the small number of murderers or indeed serial killers, and like you say, you know, that barely ever happens in mm-hmm. Ireland, mm-hmm. right? You can have, you know, decades and decades in a country with millions of people, and you could have no one would kill more than one person. Yeah. So, you know, what we're interested in in criminology, you know, I teach policing, and what we're interested in is what are the police doing most of the time? And what does that say about what we want the police to be doing, about uh, what they should be doing, about the implications of their work? And it's the same for crime. You know, I'm more interested in, for example, the fact that most people have committed a crime at some point in their life but never get caught and you and stop without ever having been caught, that's more interesting to me than like one random person. Like in billions of people, you're always going to get, as I say, every possible combination of behaviors. So Uh, what's mostly happening most of the Mm. time? The Minister for Justice, of course, has been under a lot of pressure lately um, because of the, well, what's the perception that, you know, Dublin in particular is a much more dangerous place. And even recently, those fights we've seen in Galway, et cetera, Mm. et cetera. Most of it public order instances. Um, But... The argument is, you know, we need more police on the street, not in the the Garda stations, but actually on the street. And I suppose that argument is, is that visibility, the visibility of seeing two police officers walking down the street discourages crime. Do you think more visibility of of Garda Sheikh on our police, uh, does that discourage crime? Yeah, I think that's a really good question, because what we know from the research on effective policing is that it's not really about the numbers of police, but about what they're doing. So in terms of visibility specifically, visibility can serve a couple of functions. It can provide reassurance. And I think when there's talk about visible policing, you know, those who are really familiar with the effectiveness of policing know that it's about communication, right? If you talk about we want to see more police around, then really that's about providing reassurance to people. But the reality is that... If if the police walk the beat, like police officers can walk around residential areas for a whole career and not go within half a mile of a burglary actually happening, right? Mm-hmm. So you can so there there is there is some function to high visibility policing such as reassurance, but um, you know it does depend on what they're doing. And I mean, for example, there is a uh, a body of research called hotspots policing which basically says that if you pick the highest crime, smallest geographical area and have a few police officers always present there, it is possible that that can deter crime. And what's really interesting about some of that research is it talks about the fact that if you, uh, because there's always a question around, are you going to just displace it? Are you going to move it to somewhere else? But periodically there is research which suggests that if you have that um, that very targeted visibility in uh, very narrow hot spots, 
then not only do you deter the crime from happening in that area, but in fact, it doesn't happen at all. And I mean, that says what that says, you know, to answer your point about the psychology, that says something really interesting about the person committing crime is that it's not pathological, right? It's again, it's a product of environment. It's we would do this in this area under the circumstances. But, oh, OK, no, there's some police there. Well, we won't do it at all. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, just a, an interesting text in there from a listener, Martin, who talks about, you know, the courts, the court system, because you mentioned them briefly there a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. When people see, for example, you know, a paedophile or a rapist or somebody who's committed a serious crime getting a suspended sentence or getting a very low sentence and these kind of mm-hmm. sentences which, you know, are, are, like one guy gets seven years in jail for not paying his tax on his garlic and somebody else who's a paedophile and has a 10,000 porn images gets a six-month suspended sentence and people see that and they kind of lose faith in the justice system. Do you think that if the justice system is not giving out the right sentencing and is not, you know, punishing people properly or would we talk about whether we should be talking about punishment or rehabilitation in a minute but in the eyes of the public the retribution is what it's all about I suppose um, do you think that has an effect on crime like for example in America in states I believe where they have the death sentence it doesn't actually reduce the crime rate of murder so does it actually reduce crime in general if people see that somebody is getting a decent sentence for committing that crime in the first place do people then sort of say I better not yeah. do that Yeah, that's really interesting. So I I suppose a few things there, one of which is that we have very, very high expectations for what the criminal justice system is going to be able to achieve. And those expectations are so high that we are absolutely bound to be disappointed no matter what happens. And part of that is that we really do think that the criminal justice system itself has the ability to prevent crime from happening. But, of course, the criminal justice system is not really in control of the causes of crime, which are broadly social and economic. So that's, I suppose, one thing. Secondly, in terms of whether it should all be about retribution and does the criminal justice system give enough retribution? I mean, when we teach sentencing, we say that there's there's two categories of reasons you might sentence someone. And one of those is... Uh, about morality. It's moralistic. And retribution is part of that. So with retribution, you would say the right thing to do is to impose a proportionate amount of harm on the person because what they did was wrong, irrespective of the consequences of that. You are doing that. You're imposing the harm on them because they deserve it, because what they did was wrong. doesn't matter the consequences. Whereas rehabilitation falls under a slightly different logic that we call consequential. So if you're a consequentialist, then you're saying the reason we sentence people should be because of the consequences that it will have, right? Mm -hmm. So what's very difficult sometimes is that those two things are quite contradictory. So it is entirely reasonable, in my view, for people to feel like retribution is important and you should, you know, the right thing to do is to impose a proportionate amount of harm on someone. But what is uh, uh, unfortunate and difficult is that people do also think that that will make us safer. And I can absolutely guarantee from the research that that doesn't really make us safer. So we know that increasing uh, the punitiveness of sentences does not deter crime. And we know that, you know, in, in general, it doesn't deter other people from committing crime. And we also know that if for the individual, basically, the harsher you are, the more likely it is to mess up their life, mess up their circumstances even more, 
and things like criminal records even, but also prison sentences basically guarantee that you're going to increase the amount of crime in society. So in a way, you know, it's totally reasonable for someone to think we should, you know, the right thing to do is retribution, but we have to also accept that if we're going to prioritize that, we're probably going to make society less safe. Well, that, that kind of brings us to the final part of our conversation. And that would be about what happens when people are in jail and the purpose of jail or the, the penal system, mm-hmm. as they call it. So the purpose of jail in many people's eyes, as we mentioned a minute ago, is retribution. Uh, for some people, it's rehabilitation. For some people, it's revenge. Um, so there's many purposes to jail for people, depending on who the victim happens to be. But, I mean, I've seen, we, we talked about a story there recently, I think it was in the Netherlands, where the prison, you know, they have Sky TV on the wall, PlayStations, a sofa. There are, there's a beach actually beside the prison where they sit out during the day. And the argument is that if you treat a prisoner well, they're less likely to reoffend when they're released. Um, whereas if you treat them badly, they're more likely to reoffend. And I don't know how true those statistics are. But how should we be treating prisoners when we're in jail? And I'll come back to the, the kind of retribution revenge. Should we take into consideration the victim? Because like in Japan, for example, the victim gets to decide how long somebody spends in jail or what happens to a murderer, for example. Should we take that into consideration that they want revenge? Yeah, so the, the, the victim should be way more taken into consideration but that doesn't necessarily mean that there needs to be more retribution. So the justice system that we have in Ireland and in other similar countries is what we call an adversarial system, and that means that the two parties to the court case are the state and the suspect. So the victim is not a party to the case. And the consequence of that, or that, or I should say, I suppose, that's indicative of the fact that the whole justice system is not designed to meet victims' needs. So victims have all sorts of needs from validation and vindication through to services that they might need. And basically, because of our obsession with punishing the other person, we just simply have not invested in all of those services that victims need. So we don't have good services or we don't have enough resources in services for victim support. We don't have enough resources and services for uh, health-related and psychological-related support for victims, really, really practical stuff that victims might need. We simply have not invest. Victim compensation, state compensation for victims of crime is very, very underdeveloped. Mm. And that's because our system asks what law was broken, who broke it, and how do we punish them? And again, that's a very retributive approach, and people might think that victims benefit from that. But if you'll notice from those questions I ask, what law was broken, who broke it, and how do we punish them? The victim is not involved in that at all. So that's where restorative justice comes in. And restorative justice asks very different questions. If you have a restorative approach, the question is, who was harmed? What needs have arisen as a result of that harm? And whose obligation is it to meet those needs? Mm. So what's really interesting is that contrary to what I think um, we tend to see and hear about what justice needs to be, We absolutely could have justice that is not a zero-sum game. It could be something where justice is a space where people are able to have their needs identified and met as far as possible, where you can have accountability and responsibility taking that's active, not passive like being fined or going and sitting in prison. That's passive responsibility, whereas in an active responsibility, the perpetrator would take some 
responsibility for repairing the harm that was done, addressing, repairing, and preventing the harm. And that's really what I would like to see. You know, I have to say that I really don't think we should prioritize retribution, not because people don't deserve it, not because proportionality is not important, but because I think that we should orient the system around making society safer and meeting victims' needs. And we just simply know from the research that the more we prioritize retribution, the more we're going to forget about those things. Mm. So so when I come back to the start of the question was, you know, we have different types of prisons. We, in Ireland, we don't have the kind of penitentiary-type prisons that you would see in America where people are treated badly on bread and water in a single well, no, cell. No, well, you have some pretty brutal prisons here. I don't know if Mount you've ever Joy. been. I mean, I've been to, Mount, well, Midlands, Port Leash, Mount Joy, Clover Hill, Wheatfield, like, these are places that hold between them probably the majority of people in custody here. And, you know, they're not nice places to be at all. Um, now, I mean, they're not, you know, they're, they're not, not meant like to be these nice. tiny little yeah. ca- they're, 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 Well, they're not meant to be nice. And also, well, exactly, right? They're designed to impose harm on people. And we suffer the consequences of that from the very, very high rates of reoffending that we see. Whereas you mentioned some of the prisons in other countries where, you know, in some countries they have this principle of normality. That is, the punishment is that you're not allowed to leave. But while you're in there, everything else should be as normal as possible. And that means you have a job, you get paid, you pay your rent, you do your cooking, you know, you live a normal life so that you're not totally institutionalized when you get out. And what we do see is that reoffending tends to be lower in countries or in, in prisons which operate on that basis. So again, there's just something of a contradiction there. We can. I, I don't know. I mean, I know you've. Eat, I know. I know you've looked into the statistics, and I'm sure you know a lot more about this mm. than I do mm. in relation to restorative justice. But I, when I think about somebody going into, say, a, a prison, that would be pretty normal. Like, uh, you know, like a hotel. Well, I'm not saying like a hotel because that would be overdoes it slightly. But certainly, you know, where they have a normal way of life, a job, they get paid, they make their own dinner, they learn, they go to college, whatever it happens to be, and they have a decent enough room, a space. Not like, you know, a six-foot cell, you know, where they pee in the corner of the room. Um, and I think to myself, there are individuals in society who would be quite happy with that. You know what I mean? And I, I, as it is, we have heard of people, we had a guy in the air who told us he purposely committed a crime to go into jail to get his teeth done. So, I mean, this happens in Irish society, sadly. So mm. if we made it more attractive, surely more people would be thinking, I'm not saying they're going to go out and commit murders, but they'd be quite happy to go in there. They wouldn't really, it doesn't, it wouldn't seem like any kind of retribution at all, because as you said, it has to be a combination of retribution and restorative justice as well and, and uh, rehabilitation. So, I mean, you, you don't want to make it too attractive either, do you? Well, that's true. But I mean, I suppose if I had some extra resources kicking around as the government or if I had the ear of the policymakers, I would be proposing making the outside a more attractive place to remain rather than making prison a less attractive place to be. Like you're always going to have people whose lives are in such a state on the outside, maybe that's homelessness or addiction or any other combination of circumstances, like you're never going to have a prison that is worse than any possible combination of circumstances someone could experience on the outside. So, you know, I would love to see the outside being made a bit more hospitable for people in such a way that might actually prevent people from going down that route. I get you. Okay, so the guy who got his t- wanted to get his teeth done, he shouldn't have had to go to those kind of extremes. He should have been able to get them done on no, the outside. No, well, exactly. Like, imagine, imagine a situation where... You know, people need a roof over their head. They maybe need psychiatric treatment. They need dental treatment. 
and they can't afford it or the services aren't available or for any other combination of reasons that they feel the only way is to is to go to, to, go to prison. Jail. I mean, what? Yeah, exactly. Like, why would we want, you know, the solution to that is let's let's provide those services. If you had your way, Ian, would you close down Mountjoy, close down Port Leash, close down all those prisons? Yeah, I mean, I suppose what I would say is that, I mean, first of all, the old Victorian prisons are not good pieces of infrastructure, right? They're not fit for if we actually want to make society safer by helping people stop committing crime. So in that sense, you know, some of the bigger and older prisons, I would happily close down, even if they were, you know, let, even if they were being replaced by something else. Yeah. But what I would say is that, like, Ireland already does quite a good job of not sending people to prison unnecessarily. It has a lower rate of imprisonment than, for example, England does. But still, quite a lot of people in prison in Ireland, more than 70 percent, are in prison for less than a year. And what we can take from that, what I would conclude from that, also knowing about, and you can see this in, you know, the annual report of the court service, the annual report of the prison service, what types of offenses people actually commit and end up in prison. And it's not the most serious stuff. And what that says to me is a couple of things. One, we imprison people that we're angry at, not just people that we're scared of. And the people that we're angry at probably don't need to be in prison. It might make us, you know, it, it might be difficult for us to um, to provide support for people who've done something harmful that we're angry at. But there are a lot of people who go to prison who really don't need to be there. And if we invested mm. in the community-based services, and I mean, just bear in mind, I couldn't agree with you more. You don't go yeah. to prison. That's mm-hmm. not something that that doesn't mean nothing happens. Like you can have really, really intensive uh, alternatives to custody where people are, you know, either on a voluntary basis or coerced if necessary, engaging with all sorts of services on a conditional basis where, you know, you ha- you need to engage with all this stuff and you need to do reparation in some way and, yeah. you know, yeah. prove that you can be a law-abiding citizen. And you know what? I was only talking about that as well about two weeks ago, and I couldn't agree with you more. There are so many people go to jail in this country unnecessarily who are not a danger to society, a danger to themselves mm. probably more so, but not a danger to society, and community service should be used more often, um, you know, because there are plenty of jobs we could get them to do in the community, particularly with people who have skills. Um, and the idea of putting somebody in jail, for example, for a television, not paying a television license, is just barmy. Um, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Or not Hello? paying a bill in general. Yeah, definitely. Look, I mean, I, I, I know I've got you back. And, and the courts are clogged up as well, right? Not just the prisons, but the courts are clogged up with people who these offenses could be resolved outside of court. Well, listen, thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure speaking to you, and I'm sorry that we kind of kept you so long, um, a little bit longer than we expected, but it was just a very interesting conversation. Dr. Ian Marder. Ian is a lecturer and assistant professor at Minute University, County Kildare, and the deputy director of the Research Centre of Criminology uh, for the college. Thank you, Ian, and I'm sure we will get to chat to you again at some point. Uh, thank you very much. Real people. Real opinions. Real Talk Radio. The multi-award winning Niall Boylan Show.